Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about science fiction and the impending hydrological disaster that is our future. I'm Annalee Newitz. I'm a science journalist who writes science fiction, and you can pre-order my upcoming novel, The Terraformers, which is coming out in January. I'm Charlie Jean Anders. I'm a science fiction writer. I think quite a lot about science, and you can pre-order my upcoming novel, which is called Promises Stronger Than Darkness, <laughs> which comes out in April. We just wanted to take a second to say thanks to all the folks who voted to give us a Hugo Award for Best Fan Cast this year. Thank you so much. It really does mean so much to us, and we're just so grateful for your support over the past few years. Yeah, I think this is a triple crown for us. This is, is our third Hugo Award for Best Fan Cast. We're so stoked. And now, back to the show. We live in California, where the land is suffering through the worst drought in over a thousand years. And as a result, we're dealing with massive annual wildfires and water shortages. People who are living in the driest parts of the state are having to dig deeper and deeper wells for potable water, and that's siphoning off our already depleted aquifers. California's farms are facing a possible death sentence. And meanwhile, elsewhere in the world, massive floods from superstorms are inundating cities and coastal areas. So in this episode, we're talking about how science fiction has already started to grapple with the water crisis, sometimes by painting apocalyptic scenarios and sometimes by suggesting hopeful solutions. And later in the episode, we'll be joined by research geologist Kyle House, who studies floods and rivers in Arizona, where the lower Colorado River is his laboratory. Also, on our audio extra next week, we'll be talking about the complicated ethics of Amazon's move to pause reviews on the Rings of Power TV series after getting review-bombed by racists who didn't like seeing black elves and dwarves. And by the way, did you know that this podcast is entirely independent and funded by you, our listeners, through Patreon? That's right. So if you become a patron, you can give us a couple bucks, five or ten bucks would be really great. That's what makes this podcast happen. We give you audio extras with every episode if you become a patron. And plus, you get access to our Discord channel where we're hanging out right now. In fact, I keep posting weird pictures drawn by AIs of flying moose, and you could be seeing them, and it would be great. So anything you give really helps. It helps pay for our production, it helps pay for hosting, and it just helps pay for us to have really good opinions. So thank you so much if you're already a supporter, and if you're not a supporter, please consider pitching in a little bit every month. So you can find us at patreon.com slash ouropinionsarecorrect. And now... On to flowing into the show. Obviously, science fiction has been dealing with water crises for a really long time. The novel A Princess of Mars, which came out in 1912, deals with a water crisis on Mars because all the canals are drying up. The movie version, called simply John Carter, was a bust, but the topic of water crises is still a common trope. Why is this such a sticky topic? 
I mean, obviously, water is one of our most precious resources, and some of our oldest myths deal with things like mega floods um, and also the horror of drought. So even outside of myths, some of our earliest written records from ancient Egypt, for example, chronicle that kingdom's annual rainfall because they irrigated crops using the Nile's annual floods. Sorry, I'm having a little archaeology moment here. But really, some of the earliest forms of evidence-based predictions of floods started in ancient Egypt, where they used a device that was called a nilometer. Okay, that is a translation, but it is translated as nilometer. Um, And it measured just levels of the Nile. And officials used it to predict how well the harvest would go based on those water levels. So humans have been obsessed with water management and water prediction and water use for a really long time. So it's obviously no surprise that it shows up in our fantasies and our science fiction too. Sure, and it's interesting that you bring up ancient Egypt because a lot of science fiction about water shortages and water-based disasters kind of depicts people kind of going back to an earlier, maybe pre-industrial way of life. Yes. When there's no water in a story or like water has disappeared or there's been some horrific disaster, suddenly it seems like everything gets really medieval, which is what allows me to bring up the most important movie in the water resource subgenre, The Ice Pirates. This is a classic flick from 1984, which is a comedy about swashbuckling space pirates stealing water. In the far distant future, in a galaxy where those in the know don't go, real estate is cheap and they've got great sushi, but there's no water. You got any uh, water? It is a time when desperate men will swing from the chandeliers. Just to get a drink. Just take a look at that. Yeah, I love that movie. It's just, it's, you know, it's an important text in the, in the <laughs> canon of, of water-based science fiction. And, you know, there's also, like, recently Mad Max Fury Road, which feels very much like we've gone back to a medieval system. It's very feudal under the rule of the Immortan Joe, where control of water is basically how he keeps his subjects in line. Yeah, it's funny because in that movie, our main character, Furiosa, is trying to fight against this, you know, as you said, like a medieval kingdom run by a water despot. But also, the other thing that's interesting is in that kingdom, they worship industrial technology. They worship cars, basically. And they do that because, you know, implicitly, cars and trucks are really rare in this movie. It's it's an era when fuel is also uh, incredibly difficult to find. And it's like somehow the loss of water imaginatively leads to a loss of 20th century technology. So it seems like in these kinds of stories, water seems to stand in for other kinds of technology or other kinds of resources. Like he who controls the water also controls things like high-tech transit. Yeah, I think it's more just that like the Mad Max movies span different eras in like how we think about apocalypses. Like there's nuclear war, which is kind of the early Mad Max films, but then also Mm. oil scarcity, like peak oil is a big concern of like Mad Max the Road Warrior. And I think also Beyond Thunderdome, which is a little hazier for me. (laughs) And I think that, you know, basically when George Miller goes back to make a a fourth Mad Max movie, uh, Fury Road, he's like, well, so peak oil isn't such a big deal anymore. 
because we found new ways of getting oil out of the ground, but now water scarcity is the new thing. And so there's still that kind of lingering notion that resources in general, including oil, are going to be more scarce, but that also the thing that's really going to kill us is lack of water, which I think is accurate. It's like it's more accurate, actually, than the other Mad Max movies. But, you know, and then you have Dune, where there are two resources that people are trying to get. This kind of ties in with what you were saying about Mad Max. In Dune, everybody is obsessed with getting the spice, which is this thing that allows you to travel through space. But also, uh, water is like a huge concern, which is why people have to drink their own pee and sweat. I mean, they do on the planet Arrakis anyway. Right. Desert planet, um, Mm -hmm. where... There's these two hidden resources on the planet, literally underground resources, which are water and the spice. And it's funny because water is sort of associated with transit here, just as you see in Mad Max Fury Road, where like water is this resource and then transit is this resource. And they kind of both stand in for like things that we really need in order to have a civilization. Um, And in Dune, of course, The spice is what allows you to travel through space. But the funny thing is in Dune, there's sort of this inverse relationship between water and spice because if Arrakis actually gets rain again, which is kind of in the novels, that's the direction that the story is going, is that the planet will eventually become green, it will start raining again, it won't be a desert planet anymore. But if it does go green, then that will kill the worms, presumably. And that means that ends the spice trade. So having more water actually wrecks your ability to have this other resource. Yeah, and you know, I feel like Dune is a story that's more relevant than ever because of that kind of like concern about environmental exploitation and, you know, the the excessive like, or not excessive, but like really intense focus on preserving your water and the Fremen culture is all about like, if you fight someone, you can take their water, Mm -hmm. which is like a whole, it's like basically like control over water is part of how their civilization continues to exist. And uh, at the same time, it is kind of showing how our resource extractive economy is kind of ultimately doomed and leads to pointless wars. So it's super relevant. Yeah. Yeah. I think like the more that I ponder this, the more I feel like Water is, I mean, obviously in a lot of these stories, water is just water. It stands, it doesn't stand in for anything. It's like literally we need water to live. It's an important resource. But it also, it stands in for all of these other resources that we need to have to live the way we've become accustomed to, right? So that's why there's this fear of, say, losing access to 20th century industrial technology or interstellar transit, because these are these are resources that allow us to live, not literally, but but they do figuratively. And so water has a metaphorical meaning, but it also, like I said, it's literally just water. And it's funny because Dune is about resource exploitation, very literally. And then it's also about climate change. But The two things are super intermingled at this point in science fiction in a way that they just weren't uh, during the era of something like A Princess of Mars, which wasn't focused on human-caused climate change at all. It's just the reason why the water starts drying up is like there's like kind of a hand-wavy technical reason. reason. Yeah, and of course, when you think about problems involving water, you're nowadays you're going to think about climate change because mm-hmm. that's what's causing the flooding and the droughts for the most part. I mean, it's like a, a major factor at least. And, you know, of course, 
we've seen the rise of a lot of science fiction and fantasy which deals with climate change and often it does focus on our relationship with water like recent novels like Paolo Bassi Galupi's The Water Knife and Kim Stanley Robinson's New York 2140 you know talk a lot about both sea level rise and water scarcity, but then there's also the amazing movie Beasts of the Southern Wild, which deals with environmental racism in Louisiana. And that's kind of a near future fantasy story about a small town called The Bathtub, which is just outside the levees in Louisiana and gets threatened with flooding. But there are some families that don't want to leave, even though the storm surges are incredibly dangerous. The water ain't going down, man. That's my beautiful place under that wall. Everything beautiful is gone. Gotta think about moving. So that's from one of the really heartbreaking scenes in the film where the main character, Hush Puppy's dad, is just refusing to accept that climate change is destroying his home. Uh, But ultimately, there's this ray of hope at the end of that film that Hush Puppy and the new generation of people in the bathtub will figure out how to live in floating houses and just stay there. Yeah, it's basically like a both more grounded and more magical realist version of of kind of the movie Waterworld. Yes, which is, of course, the classic, terrible yet great movie about climate change. Uh, it, it has Waterworld has this very Mad Max Fury Road vibe, but it was also a huge box office failure, just like John Carter. Um, it's funny to me that these climate change adventure movies were such flops. Yeah, I feel like John Carter didn't really speak to climate change as much, at least in the film. It kind of yeah. left out more of that subplot about the canals drying up. But it is interesting that like when you see a, a movie about climate change become a huge hit, it's usually something like The Day After Tomorrow, which is kind of structured like a classic disaster film. Yeah, and that seems to lend itself better to telling the story than something about, say, resource exploitation or how do you allocate, you know, water or spice or what do you do in order to shore your town up against flooding. But I want to end this conversation on a slightly more hopeful note by talking about science fiction that treats the ocean as a place of wonder, full of undiscovered creatures and maybe even new civilizations. What you people discovered is bigger than we ever thought possible. How big is that thing? It was the largest shark that ever existed. A living fossil. Thought to have been extinct for over two million years. Wrong. Right, and that comes from The Meg, which is an, an actually a great movie about a team of scientists who discover an ancient megalodon inside one of the deep canyons at the bottom of the ocean. It's a little bit Sharktopus and a little bit The Abyss. Yes. Okay, so The Abyss is a perfect example of this hopeful way of looking at our relationship with water. So... If you don't remember, The Abyss was this incredibly game-changing movie from the early 1990s, and partly it became famous because James Cameron, as usual, developed a whole bunch of new CGI software, and he used it to create these beautiful water creatures that our scientists discover. So like in The Meg, they're going deep under the ocean, they're looking for just stuff, and they find this kind of undersea civilization of very intelligent creatures that we never knew existed. And I feel like the abyss and other stories like it are trying to send the same message as something much more apocalyptic, like the beasts of the Southern Wild or or even Fury Road. They're saying that we need to respect the power of water. 
We need to stop polluting the ocean and squandering our water resources. But instead of saying that by like threatening us with a loss of the oceans or with drought, the abyss takes this really hopeful route. It promises us this glorious, wonderful place under the ocean that we don't, we haven't yet discovered. It's basically, I don't know how you feel about this, but I feel like it's the utopian inversion of Mad Max. Yeah, I mean, that sounds kind of right to me. I feel like, you know, it's it's important to to show people something positive to reach towards in addition to kind of being like, you're going to lose it all and it's all going to be terrible. Like, I think that sense of wonder can actually motivate people to, to care more about preserving our, our habitats. Yeah. I also want to shout out to the novel A Door Into Ocean by the amazing writer and marine biologist Joan Slonczewski. And it, that's another example of exploring a beautiful undersea world. It's about a moon where there's an undersea society of all women who've developed this really advanced biotech and they have this really peaceful society. And of course, they're threatened by a bunch of aliens, aka humans, who want to exploit their natural resources. And this is a novel um, that was really a critically acclaimed novel from the 1980s. So I mean, maybe it even influenced the movie Avatar. I don't know. But I mean, it also participates in that whole trope in science fiction that deals with, you know, peaceful alien societies, you know, menaced by evil corporate dipshits. And putting those societies underwater is just a way of tying it back to the problems we have on Earth, where we're destroying these huge, peaceful underwater ecosystems like coral reefs. Yeah, and of course, the next Avatar movie is going to be all set under the ocean. It's it's James Cameron going back yeah. to his love of undersea adventure. You know, we often treat water like a natural resource, sort of like oil or shale. It's easy to forget that water is also a habitat. There's a whole other world under the ocean on Earth, and we're slowly destroying it. So the water wars that are coming may threaten many more life forms than humans. Yeah, so coming up after the break, we'll be talking to geologist and flood expert Kyle House, who has devoted his entire career to thinking about water as both an ecosystem and a natural resource. And he recently came very close to floods in his backyard. We've got another podcast that we think you'll love. It's called Subtitle, and it tells stories about languages and the people who speak them. If you've ever wondered why some people are so good at learning languages or thought about how different pronouns are represented in Swedish or Japanese, then Subtitle is the podcast for you. One episode profiles a woman who forgot her mother tongue and then set out to rediscover it. Another is about words that seem programmed to make us laugh. Yeah, this is an amazing podcast if you're a language lover. So be sure to check out Subtitle with award-winning journalists Patrick Cox and Kavita Pillay. Listen at Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. Welcome to the show, Kyle. Tell us where you are right now. I'm up on the slope of the dead mountains outside of Bullhead City, Arizona. And what can you see from where you're standing? Actually, from here, I can see the Colorado River, which is the main reason I'm here. This is a big valley that the lower Colorado River occupies. And I can see the burgeoning metropolis of Bullhead City, which is one of the hottest cities in North America. And 
still 80,000 or so people are willing to live there. Wow. How hot is it out there now? Today, it's only about 98. And can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing out there? What are you looking at and what are you measuring and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, well, no, I've been studying the lower Colorado River for a long time because it has an incredible geologic archive of the inception and evolution of the river and its linkage to the Grand Canyon upstream over the last four and a half, five million years. This time I've focused on the floodplain itself, which is a pretty marvelous place with respect to the, the dynamics of the lower Colorado River prior to being dammed up. We have a new element of our project focus, focused on developing geologic maps that depict what this river looked like. The river used to be untamed, wild, alluvial channel. And sometimes you have multiple channels, sometimes complete inundation of a floodplain that's about five to six miles wide in this particular valley, but up to 11 miles wide farther south around Blythe, California. It was an absolutely marvelous thing to behold then. Now it's forced into a single channel, has really limited flow variability, but it's, it's a fundamentally important water resource for the southwest, so it's managed. It used to be pretty much unmanageable. In floods prior to Hoover Dam on the lower Colorado River would be from snowmelt in the southern Rockies all the way up into Wyoming. And it could carve a channel about a mile wide in a flood and meander multiple miles in one event. We never would have been able to live with it in a sense if it wasn't managed, but we're really focused on trying to develop that portrayal of what it once looked like. When you say it was marvelous, what do you mean by that? You mean just that it flowed where it wanted to? (laughs) It gave no F, so to speak. It did whatever (laughs) it needed to do. And it would take out entire giant chunks of cottonwood forest in a single event. It would switch channels. It could cross a floodplain that's multiple miles wide. It's a very, very different situation. And since these are big alluvial valleys downstream from the Grand Canyon, uh, yeah, the river was basically able to go anywhere it wanted to go. Yeah, so I can see why it needed to be tamed a little bit as people started settling in the area, since you don't really want the river to just decide to yes. come through your backyard, for example. In a very big way. Yeah, hundreds of thousands of CFS, potentially. So, Wait, CFS? Oh, sorry, cubic feet per second. Yeah, holy crap. So it's just barreling through. Absolutely, yep. And we have stratigraphic records of floods up in the Grand Canyon that link to floodplain deposits down in these valleys. So we know that it's the same river, right? But when you start mm-hmm. to develop these fundamental linkages between um, the geology in each of these reaches, you start to realize that yeah, this is a pretty amazing system. And we can get an idea of how large the floods were sort of prehistorically in a stable environment like the Grand Canyon. And then we can find uh, correlative flood deposits down here and just develop a story about the behavior of the river before anybody really took any records of any kind, maybe over the last 3,000, 5,000 years, something like that. And you just had a super personal experience with flooding in actually in your backyard. Can you tell that story? I'll start with the background. There's a big stratovolcano just outside of Flagstaff, Arizona. It's about seven miles from my house. It's called San Francisco Mountain. It's a Pleistocene volcano. It's about 13,000 feet high. As our environment starts to change, we're seeing a lot more forest fires on that volcano. It has been a problem at Flagstaff that fires lead to floods. And that has been an issue that's known, but 
came to the forefront back in 2010 when there was a really big fire on the east side of the mountain. But over um, early, no, it was late in the spring, someone started a fire by burning the toilet paper in a camping area on San Francisco mountain and it burned our watershed. And our watershed being the one that drains right into our general neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And it's only about a five square mile watershed, but it had pretty significant intensities of burn. So you burn one of these watersheds and their, their flood regime becomes a completely new problematic thing. Now, why, and, why is that? Because I don't know that, I think for a lot of people, it doesn't make sense that a fire would cause a flood. So what is right. the fire doing that's making that happen? Well, in general, in this case, there was a lot of vegetation up there and a forest that had been been there for centuries and also had fires managed previously, so lots of pretty thick forest cover. Mm-hmm. And a forest is an incredibly important buffer to, rain, to heavy rainfall on a volcano or any kind of a steep slope because it intercepts the rain. Mm-hmm. It doesn't hit the ground all the time. It hits the tree and it works its way down trees. It also, a forest seasonally will develop you know, progressively larger forest floor cover of organic material, which is sort of sponge-like. Mm-hmm. And you burn all that stuff off, and all of a sudden these steep slopes just, you've actually created water-repellent surfaces, which is a function of what the fire does to the, the sedimentary material on the, on the slopes. So it's so, basically like the water is just going down a slide. So we have a monsoon season that starts started in late June this year, um, usually starts around the 4th of July, last through September. And it happened to be a really powerful monsoon this year, which mm-hmm. is something that we, it's one of the best parts of living in Northern Arizona is to enjoy the monsoon season. But in this case, it just became an incredible problem because we got lots of rain on our little watershed and had multiple floods in my neighborhood. I passed five floods through my yard in less than a month. Had that ever happened to you before? Had you ever had your neighborhood <laughs> no. flood like that? <laughs> no. And I've only lived there for 12 years, but I some of my neighbors have lived there essentially since they started building it in the late 60s, early 70s. And no one had seen that because, in all honesty, the watershed was a very different thing before the fire. Mm-hmm. It had this ability to really absorb a lot of water. The mm-hmm. increase in the output of discharge from the watershed for a given input of rain increased Mm -hmm. by a factor of about 30, which is huge. Wow. Yeah. So there's just all this water gushing down the slope that normally would have been absorbed. And then you were posting about this on Instagram. You You were watching water gushing through before it hit your neighborhood several days ahead of time. And you were putting sandbags up and you're getting your neighbors to put sandbags up. What was that like as someone who studies floods trying to plan for that in real, like in real time in your own home? Yeah, it's like an infinite loop of irony that I got flooded because I've been studying floods (laughs) in Arizona since about 1989. To quote Joni Mitchell, I've looked at floods from both sides now. But one thing I've left out of the story of the floods is that these floods are being transmitted to my property and throughout the city of Flagstaff, it appears, by an entirely antiquated substandard drainage system. Mm-hmm. So we have a culvert that can barely pass 50 cubic feet per second. That's not very far from my house. And it's got a junction in an open box and it just hemorrhages out of this thing 
like a mud volcano if any discharge is over 50 CFS coming into it. And we're mm -hmm. looking at floods that may have been about 800 CFS. Oh, crap. So we were basically victims of circumstance with respect to a stormwater management system that was known to be flawed um, for at least 16 years based on discussions and planning and zoning commission meetings that we found the, the, the minutes for. And we just had to pay the price and it, it really sucked, honestly. One of the things that really saved us was some consultants were called in to kind of evaluate the problem and some of them set up a drainage, like a rain gauge network and measured the output of some of the floods from previous fires and had a really good idea of the fact that this was probably going to happen since we had that fire in June. Mm -hmm. And they and the city promulgated high resolution flood depth maps to the neighborhood and let people know if they were facing a, a crisis or not. And that was probably two weeks before the first flood, maybe three weeks. I sort of lost track. The whole summer's just sort of melted. So there was this level of preparation that was really useful. And I'm, I'm familiar with hydraulic modeling of floods and how floods work. And it was pretty obvious that we were going to get hit. And so I, on the 4th of July, we had a, we have a neighborhood kind of barbecue get together. We're on a cul-de-sac mm -hmm. and we had a discussion. I sort of gave a presentation about, here's my take on the flood situation. I think we are in jeopardy. We started to fortify stuff and I built this huge berm with the help of some friends. And of course, my wife in our backyard that allowed us to convey flow out of an area where it was ponding where an apartment complex is. I just took my fence panel, some fence panels down and let all this discharge go through. But we built this pretty fantastic berm that is like 15 sandbags per foot and it's about 40 feet long. So you can imagine how much of a pain in the ass that was. So there's a bunch of flow that's coming in. It's yep. puddling up around this apartment building. So what you want to do is not have it puddle up you want to have it flow through the neighborhood and get the heck out wherever it's going to go. Were you creating a canal? They beca it became canals because I had so much erosion on my landscape. Mm -hmm. But it's essentially a, a wall of sandbags shaped like a pyramid. And it kind of wraps like a rainbow around my house. Did it work? I saved my house and part of my back porch from any inundation by building this big thing and diverting it around both sides of my home. And I had neighbors uh -huh. that had to do similar things. It was just a real lesson in impromptu engineering, and it did work. We passed five floods through the yard without any getting in our house. Some of my neighbors, unfortunately, did get flooded. Nothing catastrophic, but the minute flood water's into your house, your life sort of changes a bit. You really got to deal with stuff immediately. Did you know you were going to have to sacrifice your backyard? No. I, I mean, I, the way I built it meant that I knew that it, it was a potential, but I really had no idea that it was going to happen as severely as it did and as frequently, because that's an absolutely anomalous frequency. But yeah. when you learn that the culvert that creates that problem in three out of the five floods is so drastically undersized, then you realize, oh, no, now I get it. Mm -hmm. they, there wasn't a system in place that was even remotely able to handle a flood that was half the size of some of the floods that we had. So wow. it's it, it's a story about, you know, wildfire and drainage basins equals bigger floods and more yeah. frequent floods. It just alters the hydrology of the system so much. What you might know historically about floods prior to the fire is only just a curiosity because the entire flood regime is transformed by the fire. Man. So what would you want to do differently going forward? 
Well, Flagstaff mm -hmm. is essentially a poster child for this wildfire equals flood problem. But the point is that Flagstaff and places like Flagstaff are going to face this problem for the foreseeable future. They came out in advance and did tell us that, hey, we're pretty sure that we're going to have this problem and you need to do something about it. That was the city and the engineers coming by. But that just needs to take place on a different time frame because we have a big mountain with 360 degree watersheds on it all the way around it. And they're mm -hmm. all going to feel this sort of impact. And what you need to do is to not just hope that there won't be a fire, yeah. is to plan for it and realize that, my God, well, if this watershed that hasn't yet burned burns, then we're in serious trouble because that's going to be like there's an area that's the headwaters of the Rio de Flag, the drainage that flows through Flagstaff. Mm -hmm. which is an ephemeral drainage. It only really flows in response to heavy snowpack or really heavy rain, but it'll impact the entire downtown area if it gets a flood amped up like what we had. So the idea is to fig to know that's a problem, mm -hmm. model a scenario of you know severe burn in the watershed and figure out what engineering maneuvers you can make before the flood you know, with adequate mm -hmm. time to actually make them. But yeah. Not, so is it, it like sandbagging? Like, should we be just thinking about like, okay, every year we yeah. should be figuring out uh, how no, to sandbag or no, what, do we want to rebuild our cities or what, what do we need to yeah. do? Well, <laughs> no, there's a story about a place called Soldiers Creek, Wisconsin, I believe, usually uh -huh. gets thrown around where they move their entire city because of just constant seasonal flooding, something like that. Yeah. That's a pretty extreme measure. And sometimes mm -hmm. if the situation is so perilous in certain places, then the city definitely has to consider that. It's like, we're going to have to buy these properties. The best approach is sort of an all hazards assessment with wildfire and flooding at the top of the list and recognize which sites are the most vulnerable. And every site is vulnerable, but like, what's the magnitude of vulnerability? Now we have pretty good rainfall records in San Francisco Mountain. We have... A lot of different experiences with floods from these burns. It's pretty clear what happens and how bad it can be. And so the ideal would be for the city, the county, the state, potentially the country, mm -hmm. provides the funding necessary to prepare for those structurally. Right. And right? so that means like rebuilding our water infrastructure, right? Like yes. rebuilding oh, our permanent with, runoff infrastructure. Absolutely. Yeah. In, in our little town, which is a town of like 80,000 people, about the size of Bullhead, but a lot cooler. Mm -hmm. That's the only solution, but that doesn't mean that that's the action that's going to be taken because of the right. amounts of money involved. And people get all uptight when you tell them that, I think you really have to resize this thing. This, this stream in a normal summer can no longer fit under the highway to the Grand Canyon. We have two highways that go to the Grand Canyon in Flagstaff. One goes straight north, one goes out to the east, 180 and 89. And they're obviously incredibly important highways. They both closed multiple times this summer because of flooding on the highway. Yeah. So what are you going to do next year? Are you just going to stock up on sandbags? Well, we don't have to stock up because we already have like 2,500 right. of them. But Are you, you just going to leave them out no, there? Like, well, are you going to take them well, down and put them back no. up? Like, what's going to happen? I need to be able to manage it in a, in a rational way, in a structural way, mm -hmm. in my you know, just in my own property. And where we started that process, it's super expensive to even think about it. But the obviously passing five floods through my yard certainly told us exactly what the water wants to do when it finds our, <laughs> our fence. Uh -huh. So we actually have built a cinder block wall, which will be completed on Friday. But I will note 
that I took parts of my fence down to pass the flood Yeah, under no requirement to do that. I was mm-hmm. not required to do that, but it just was the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And I saved some of my neighbors and certainly the apartment complex right behind my house from significant damage. And so we've got this wall built and we've put a gate on it to where we could play this role again if we had to. But we in no way want to have to do that. What's it like trying to clean up after a flood like that comes through your neighborhood? It comes out of the mountain pretty, you know, it's full of debris and charcoal and all kinds of crap. So the process of a post-wildfire flood is also like cleaning the watershed of all the debris that's now on the ground. You impose this much larger amount of runoff in the main creek channel, and it's going to overflow that channel and pick up all this litter that's been on the ground for decades. This is a multi-stage process. It's not just about guiding the water. It's about cleaning the watershed. It's about cleaning the water itself as it flows through. It's not something that even your neighborhood can... I mean, obviously, your neighborhood should not be responsible for this, but it's obviously an incredibly... Well, we definitely were. It was completely on us to solve the problem for for this summer. There was um, some funding was granted to the city to, to develop a detention basin upstream of all the neighborhoods that can accommodate quite a lot of water. Since we have this one problem with this hilariously undersized culvert, we'll still get flooded. Here in California, we've been warned, you know, that we're going to have mega floods soon as well. I mean, the state did flood horribly in the 19th century. Sacramento was underwater. 1861, Um, 62. Yeah. I know that the great flood and it's, it's an incredible threat uh, coming toward us again. So What are the impending water emergencies that are keeping you up at night? I can only really speak from my perspective in the Southwest. We have so many different uh, shades of water emergency down here right now. Mm -hmm. The the reservoirs on the Colorado River are as low as they've ever been since they were built, which is an incredible warning sign that there's something wrong with the way we're trying to manage water. Will the Colorado River ever dry up? Is that something that could happen? That would be like an absolutely worst case kind of remarkable scenario. But flowing a lot less, delivering a lot less water is what we're experiencing right now. Running dry is, it's kind of like the the big question is like, how do you stop a river? You know, we find evidence for all kinds of rivers in the geologic record and they came and they went. And it's like, well, what does it take for the went part? Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's usually a really long-term tectonic process, right? But no, I would never, I wouldn't want to, make a claim that the Colorado River will one day go dry, but that depends on if you're a deep time geologist or not, because of course it will at some point. Right. But that's but it not... won't be the Colorado River anymore. Right. So we're not <laughs> worried that it's gonna go dry. We're just worried that it's not going to be able to provide the water that it once did. And there's already evidence that it can't. Absolutely. That's where we yeah. are right now. The yeah. reservoir, the loss that we've had there, the it's multi-dimensional to say the least, but it has one really important story, and that is that there is not enough water to be what we were in the 1940s and 50s. You know, it's just a very different situation. So we have to prepare for less water, but also more water at the same time. Yeah, that's the vagary of extreme event hydrology, mm-hmm. for sure. But in terms of flood hazards, increasing over time that's that's a pretty standard thing as communities grow honestly that Mm -hmm. just that population growth issue will create a larger flood hazard issue because there's not enough attention given to the problem 
before development takes place. Mm-hmm. And there's not enough money focused on retrofitting things that people that are responsible for doing it know are inadequate. So maybe we need to start thinking about both retrofitting our settlements so that there's places for water to flow through, but also as we build new settlements and new communities, thinking about like, well, where are we going to send the water if our watershed burns? Or even if it doesn't burn, even if we just get an anomalously large storm surge or flood. It's truly a much more holistic way to think about it. And some people think that, you know, that's some egg-headed concept, but you really do have to understand how the system works and how it responds on different time scales. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean millions of years. I mean like decadal to centennial to maybe millennial time scales to know what you're up against and accommodate the high end of that based on real information about what you can say. There are ways as a geologist, my specialty was paleo flood hydrology when I was a grad student at U of A. And our whole goal was to go find stratigraphic records of floods in bedrock canyons to assess what flood frequency probabilities really might mean in certain areas. Because in the West, there's very short records. There's not a lot of information to really say, you know, here's the X percent chance flood, that kind of thing. I mean, you really need to do more comprehensive studies on the systems that you're worried about. And like we could figure out roughly what the frequency of fires has been over the last several thousands of years. Instead of waiting for the fire to force you to do that analysis, do the analysis for every watershed in your municipal area. Don't wait for the problem to create a nightmare like it did for me and my neighbors. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me while you're out there doing your research on the river. Of course. Thank you so much for listening to yet another episode of Our Opinions Are Correct. Remember that you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash ouropinionsarecorrect, and we'd really appreciate it if you would pitch in and help out. You can also find us on Twitter at OOACpod, and it really helps also if you rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps people find the pod. Thank you so much to our intrepid producer, Veronica Simonetti, and thanks to Chris Palmer for the music. Talk to you later. And if you're a patron, we'll see you on Discord. Bye. Bye.